Okay, so welcome to the program where we sit down and have a conversation with professional scientists visiting the University of California's Biomedical Engineering Department seminar series. I'm Randy Carney, and I'm here today with Dr. Shivang DeVay, who is the co-founder and CEO of Planoptica, and you guys are most known for the creation of this awesome transformative handheld refractor, auto-refractor that I'm looking at right now called the Quick-C. And this is a device that you and your team have been developing for many years uh, and has been used to perform eye tests of over 3 million people in more than 30 countries. Um, so yeah, welcome. It's great to have you here in person at UC Davis. Thank you so much. I'm, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really honored to be at UC Davis. I have friends, family, teachers who've gone here and been trained, and I'm from Sacramento, so this is you know, I've always felt a strong attachment to Davis, so it's really cool for me to be here today. It's been fun. Great. Yeah, how does it feel to hear that, you know, three three million people, more than three million people in over 30 countries? You, you know, it's, um, we try not to take pride in our work and just kind of heads down and grind. We're just kind of a, that's our mentality as a, a group. Um, I get asked that question a lot, and it's only when I get asked that question or when friends or family are like, hey, stop, think about that. Yeah. Um, because, you know, when you're working in social impact, in entrepreneurship, there's just a lot of things to do, a lot of things to focus on, challenges to meet. And sometimes you don't stop and smell the roses. And it's when you meet friends and family and colleagues who, who get you to pause and, and recognize that. Um, uh, I guess sometimes the danger of recognizing it too much is you can become complacent. Yeah. So, you know... It's that balance, but... Um, Doesn't sound like you're sitting on your, your laurels. <laughs> yeah. Was that always the goal? I mean, this, this many people, is that something you, you envisioned or is it surprising? Um, it's not surprising. We, we, we do take, I mean, as the group, uh, as a group, you know, and I get to speak for my co-founders and the team, like we're all, you know, really excited that we got to work on something for about a decade now and to actually bring it to, to the world and have impact in high and low resource settings. Um, in terms of the vision, though, right, the scale of the problem is, a, what, almost a thousand times bigger. So we're not even one percent, <laughs> you know? So we're very realistic about that, that, you know, the newest estimates are there's 1.1 billion people who are, who are unmet, who, who need access to eye care and don't have it, to, you know, vision care, to eyeglasses. And that's a really humbling thing to think about how fortunate one is and that it's easy access for me personally, but not for someone else. And so I think that's the motivating thing that causes us not to, to, you know, smell the roses, so to say. And um, so that's one aspect of it. And, you know, but you, you did ask, was that always the vision? And before we spun out of MIT, out of this uh, MIT Madrid and vision consortium program, um, my co-founders and I sat around a table in RLE, the Research Lab of Electronics, in a conference room and said, okay, we want to spin out. What do we want to be known for in 10 years? Do we want to be more known for social impact and less money? Or would we rather be known for, let's say, making more of a profit and less social impact? Um, and I, of course, tried to say, hey, we can do both. <laughs> and one of my co-founders, who's very sharp, was like, no, let's make it binary. And... And, it, and it's very realistic because sometimes you have to make concessions and trade-offs and, um, yeah, to focus. And so we all unanimous, unanimously agree that, hey, as bioengineers and having been trained, it's a very unique opportunity for us to work on a technology that has the potential to touch many lives and improve quality of life in a fundamental way. And that was more important than trying to just make a lot of money. We could have all gone to industry and got a bit better job and... We knew if we just focused on trying to be profitable, then we would only focus on Western markets and not low and middle income countries. Mm -hmm. So it, that ended up becoming a North Star for us, part of the mission statement, which was really important when you have to make tough decisions and you say, well, are we living up to the mission if we take this action or that action? And um, so with that in mind, you know, we're happy we've seen been, you know, and it's a hard number to, to quantify. That number is an estimate, but um, based on what we hear from our partners who use our device, it's more than 3 million people. But we know some of the partners had projects in place to see tens of millions of people last year and this year alone, uh, 
adults in rural settings, children, and of course the pandemic put their, those plans on pause. So um, we're excited for where we can go, but even seeing 10 million people in four years still doesn't quite feel like we've reached the potential we want to, that we're, we're, we're striving for. And it's in an egoless way. It's just a, it's a need-driven way. Cool. So what is the underlying problem that you guys really are trying to address? Yeah, the underlying problem is that there are these people who have uncorrected refractive errors, right? It means they need glasses and they don't have them to correct their vision, whether it's farsightedness or nearsightedness or presbyopia when you're older and you can't reach stuff close to you. And that, that's the fundamental problem. And what our technology does is address one of, a couple of the barriers. Some of the barriers that cause this problem to exist are there's not enough doctors, in some of these settings, or if there are doctors, they're clustered in high-resource urban cities, and they're not in rural areas, or they're in only certain neighborhoods. So you could be in New York, and there could be you could be in an eye care desert, depending on which neighborhood you're in. And so there's an access, physical access problem. And then there's also kind of a scalability problem or a, an equipment problem. The equipment that's usually used in vision exams or big bulky instruments that are stuck in clinics and they're not mobile. And so what our technology does, one of its features is its portability. That allows you, the eye care professional, or the NGO or the government to go deploy this anywhere, to carry it anywhere, like a laptop computer. One of the other kind of features is that it's very easy to train and it's an objective measurement. So that makes it easy for illiterate populations getting tested or Populations have difficulty in communicating. You can think like special needs um, patients. Um, and it also allows you, the eye care professional, to task shift vision screening and some of these other parts of the vision exam to a technician, which you can scale up many more technicians than you can eye care doctors. And then you, the eye care professional, optometrist, ophthalmologist, can focus on those patients that are triaged that need really advanced care. And so that helps improve efficiency in a different way and build capacity for these organizations. And um, so that's kind of what our technology does, is if you really step back, it's about capacity building. It's about reach. So whether you're a, a religious group going for you know, humanitarian reasons to go to a community and you're trying to provide glasses, this helps you do it more accurately, reliably, shift. If you're going as an optometrist or a global health researcher or a nonprofit or a government, it just allows you to build up that capacity more. Uh, an analogy could be the world before personal computing, right? Mainframe computing or just desktop computing. You go into the field, you're not taking a desktop computer, you're taking a bunch of paper charts. Then you come back, you go input them, it's really slow, There's error it's error prone. And the laptop fundamentally changed that. And in a way, we, we, we're kind of doing the same thing. The laptop made you more efficient. It didn't do everything a desktop computer did. But it did enough to just expand the reach of computation outside of that. So I guess unlike the, the desktops, the, the doctors probably want to complain a little bit more about this, these, this disruptive technology. So yeah, what, what's it been like interfacing with physicians that I'm sure many can see that this would be an amazing technology that would benefit them in a lot of ways, but there may be others that, that are seeing this as, you know, putting them out of a job or trying to solve a problem they don't want to be solved. Uh, I guess in more in general, kind of your perspective on, you know, machine automation and, and taking over from these highly trained specialists. This is a really interesting question and uh, one that everyone struggles with. You know, we've, we've had an interesting experience with it because... In our early days, when we were just starting this project, and we'd go talk to technicians and eye care doctors, they'd be, they'd be like, wow, you're really knowledgeable about the eye. Like, and we'd say, oh, we're, we're working on this kind of research. And then they would get really defensive and sensitive. And they would ask that question, are you trying to disrupt me? And the answer was no. The point is, OK, you're a doctor doing well in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But in rural India, you're not there. And we need someone there to see those people. Um, and, or it could be a neighborhood of Boston. Well, there's a lot of healthcare disparity populations there. And so once we started talking to them in terms of what our mission was, the outreach, 
and that they saw we were working with very reputable organizations, you know, other um, eye care nonprofits or institutions or researchers, key opinion, key opinion, opinion leaders. And um, also when they started seeing that we were approaching the science very rigorously. We're very thorough in what we, uh, how we do our clinical studies and publish, and we don't hype up our marketing. Our marketing budget is very small. And so we kind of let the work speak for ourselves, and they would see, oh, okay, you're working with these groups that are having impact. And just to be clear, part of their sensitivity came because there were other startups in the space trying to disrupt them. And those startups were very well-funded, fast-moving, high-marketing, low-scientific kind of validation, clinical validation. So they're already on the defense because of these companies. Yeah, and those guys poisoned the well. And they, um, a lot of them did not succeed because they didn't have a technology that really worked in these rough conditions. Um, yeah, so when, you know, you're, you're, you're just getting started in this company and you, and then we can talk about in, in a bit about developing the kind of back end, but let's, let's start at, you know, you have some kind of prototype or some idea. How do you identify these physicians that you even talk to? How do you, you know, is it just trial and error of learning the language to talk to them? Is it, were you shell shocked the first time someone gives you a negative reaction because you're just coming from a place of, you know, just trying to, to improve uh, this, this global health problem? That's a great question. Um, we weren't shell-shocked because we'd all kind of been around the block. We had done this before and other projects. But how do you network with the right doctors? First, it's just like anything. You, you read the literature, you see who's publishing, you see if they, can, if they can talk to you. Or you just talk to your local doctor. Right? You want to get a sense of, you know, all, all aspects of healthcare um, are on a spectrum, right? How healthcare is provided at a really high resource cutting-edge research facility is different than how it is provided in the same country or the same city, but at kind of a smaller clinic. And it's different than how it's provided at a community health center or at a global health clinic, you know? And once you realize that, you start saying, okay, I need to talk to all these stakeholders, not just one type. And so when you're at a university, it's easier for you to talk to the key opinion leaders at the medical center, Mm -hmm. which is a cutting-edge medical center. So start there learn from them. They have a lot of experience. Um, then talk to their friends, you know, and then you just start emailing, cold calling, knocking on doors, reading the literature, looking up, okay, well, here's a nonprofit doing work in sub-Saharan Africa in eye care. Let's take their perspective on it. Let's call a big eye hospital in India, see if they'll take our call and learn from their perspective if this technology would help them, what they can, what are their needs and constraints and their barriers. And so, it's a, a lot of elbow grease is just put into it. To um, And it, I don't have a structured method. I know some people kind of advocate for a structured interview process and how you find people. Ours was a little more organic. Um, but, you know, if you, if you start focusing on it, you go from talking one or two or five people to tens to hundreds, you know, in a, in a short amount of time. And then you have a really good sense of what's going on because you've you've taken in all these viewpoints yeah so is it you know it it strikes me that you'd probably have to remain pretty open and flexible you're talking to experts that by definition i guess would be having more knowledge than you on that particular topic was was there deal breakers where you're you know i mean i guess there's some times where you have to make huge pivots away from your initial ideas even um or, or were you pretty steady in what you wanted to accomplish and just had to find those right people to champion you so, oh, that's, uh, I, um, hmm. So before we spoke to anyone, first we did a lot of reading, right? You read the literature, you, you make yourself as knowledgeable as you can, and then go talk to folks. That way you don't do them the disservice of wasting their time and having them teach you basic things. And that's the easiest way for, for them to get tired with the conversation. But if you show up being knowledgeable, it might scare some of them because they're like, why are you so knowledgeable? But you can, you can advance the conversation into the nuanced points that you don't understand and get their perspective on these things that are hard to find in the literature. So for you guys at the beginning, was that mostly about the device design or the test design or just the space in general? Or did you already know, okay, we're going to automate the general eye exam? 
So yeah, it, it, the the instrumentation um, we could do because my co-founders um, are really experienced in. I mean, all of us have worked on biomedical imaging, um, and and some have done much more work on instrumentation. So it wasn't that aspect. What we weren't sure about was, you know, what what would be an ideal price point for this to be useful for you? What kind of features does it have to have? How accurate does it have to be? for you to feel confident to use it in your clinic in a high resource setting. Is that the same accuracy level you need when you go to a global health setting? That's an interesting ethical question, right? We had, we already knew what our position was, but we wanted to understand what their position was. Our position was, if you have the ability, the clinical accuracy, accuracy should be the same irregardless of the population or the location. Mm-hmm. That's the ethical thing to do. But in global health, you, you know, you have different cost constraints, right? And um, you, you can't control the lighting conditions and the environment in which you're testing in. So that could affect the accuracy as well. So we, what we really tried to do was understand the market forces, what their pain points were, what features and benefits they needed for them to want to adopt something. And if they did adopt it, what really would be the impact? You know, is it just they would adopt it and, you know, nothing happens or does this actually help them scale their organization or does it actually help them improve access see more people or see more people across more varied variety geographies those are things you can't really nail down just by reading literature you can get ideas but they're theoretical you know and so it's it's kind of the difference of you can go ask any of these folks for an opinion on what you should design you get a bunch of theoretical ideas and you can start coalescing that into some unified vision and everyone will say yeah if, if it meets that vision that looks interesting i would use that great that's a different level of rigor than when you actually show back up to them and you say hey i have it in my hand now do you want to pay me x amount of dollars right. to buy this and then you see a whole different level of scrutiny Right, sure. Of kicking the tires, of trying to yeah, wait a second. Yeah, actually, well, this we doesn't this. do it, right? <laughs> so you do iterate on that aspect. The further your prototype gets along, what I've noticed is you'll get much more rigorous feedback because now they can see it. When I talk to you about something conceptually, you're gonna give me high level conceptual answers. I think that's true for yeah, even in my experience in science research, right? Yeah, yeah. it's everything seems good, and you start putting it on paper and putting it into practice, and a lot of things become a lot more complicated. <laughs> yeah, when they see the preliminary results, when they see the form factor, then they go, oh, well, here's what's wrong with that form factor. I didn't know about that before. Then, you know, when you start making cons- design decisions and say, well, the manufacturing costs are going to be this, then they think about it differently. So you do iterate, and I think the more you iterate, but at different stages of prototyping and ideation, you'll get different depths of answer, and that will help guide you further. So obviously there's a lot of hindsight um, that you probably may have done things differently, but you know, if you're going, if you're, let's say you want to spin off a new technology mm-hmm. today, knowing what you know now, is this something you would consider to, you know, these kind of, it's hard to plan for these obstacles because yeah. of course you don't know, but is this something you would change the way you went about designing this to take into account these considerations, like try to get a working prototype that might not be as accurate faster to kind of address these problems or is it just something you just have to kind of plan for or can't plan for i think you you, there are a lot of learnings we could take forwards um we were really fortunate the program in which we were trained to come up with this was very focused on helping you optimize how you manage science you know a lot of places you go to go study science to be better in a new field but you kind of do experiments and think about it the same way. And they were very efficient. This, um, the program's now called uh, MIT Link. Um, and it's really about like focusing on translational medicine and how do you do it more efficiently? What is the killer experiment you need to do to see if this is worth your time? And how can you move that faster, more efficiently? And um, so that helped us be efficient. But we still made a lot of mistakes in the, in the or we had a lot of opportunity to learn, let's say, right? In, um, in developing the product. And so, so, I mean, I think one of the places where academics and certainly us included um, underestimate 
how much thought needs to go into something is like on usability. You focus on the, the scientific metrics, resolution, sensitivity, specificity, false positive rate, you know, time to acquisition, you know, contrast sensitivity or, um, you know, um, signal to noise. And we're, you're very smart. You're very used to learning things, figuring things out. And you think the rest of society is equally interested in doing that. And you under, it's easy to underestimate human user interfaces. And how do you make something intuitive for a lay audience? How do you make something intuitive for a very educated audience like clinicians, but they're very busy? And they don't necessarily have the time or desire to want to learn how to use a new piece of instrumentation. You know, they're focused on thinking of medical triage and decision-making, more important things. And if you create a product that changes workflow or doesn't work the same way as the previous thing it's, you know, replacing the other instrumentation it's replacing, um, those kind of things are easy to overlook. And that's where you have to do a lot of iteration. And we've learned so much by iterating the device and going through three, or I think we went through six clinical studies, something like that, before launching the product. We've done another nine or ten since, something like that. Wow. Um, roughly. And um, now how we and the engineering team think about, well, how does someone interpret a user interface? How does someone's hand go when they're pushing a button how does a patient hold the device and where do their hands go in the right place or the wrong place? All these kind of things we have a much better sense of now that we didn't before. And so we could do that whole part much quicker. And um, as I was, I was mentioning in the lecture this morning, some of those um, things are very obvious in hindsight, but not when we were first designing it. And so that caused us to do some extra rounds of iteration that we probably could have skipped, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, we certainly think as a group we can move much faster moving forwards. And, um, and I think that's, you know, but you'll do the same thing if you're building just a software device, or sorry, a software app. You, know, you think the first user interface you design is great. Once you get feedback from users, you'll understand where it can improve. And it's, it's hard to predict that ahead of time until you really know your user base, your customer, your stakeholders, and how they think and behave and how they interact with technology. I guess in the context of global health, there's a further challenge because unlike, you know, many more specific problems, you're trying to reach a very broad audience, yeah. um, maybe disabled people, children, yeah. Yeah. Um, elderly, so yeah. probably, uh, but your team has, has come up with a sort of one-size-fits-all device, yeah. um, so I can see where the usability becomes a huge challenge. I mean, some of those things we underappreciated and like... We, we thought the solution worked perfect, let's say, for, I'll give you an example, for elderly folks. You know, if, if um, someone's kind of has weak arms and they can't hold up our device, we, we created uh, training techniques to help the operator help support the weight. But, you know, I started shadowing a doctor who was using our device in nursing homes. He invited me to shadow him for a day. And my concept of what a nursing home was like and its population was way wrong. And then I saw, and, and this is in the US, and you know, a f maybe a third of the patients had stroke. They could not hold the device with their hands. And so he had to come up with his own kind of techniques, and we had some of our, our own techniques to, but he came up with his own techniques of how to hold the device up by himself to a patient's uh, face, to their eyes, and get an accurate measurement. And that was really cool for me to see, and it showed me how creative, some folks can be, but also that, you know, okay, we, we should have caught that ahead of time. And, and, you know, that was a very well-trained creative doctor, but to your point, in the global health setting, yeah, it's, it's got to work with someone who's not a doctor, who might have just been appointed a community health worker with very minimal training, right? And um, that also has, you know, I think we, we now have a much deeper appreciation of instruction sets and user manuals and what seems like a good in-depth manual for an engineer. It's not necessarily an intuitive manual for a non-engineer. And uh, 
that is that is a tough challenge. That's what makes. I guess most of your population that you're testing this on are not engineers. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. You know, when you're in academia, you you build biomedical engineering technologies for global health. You're working with really cool professors and motivated students and key opinion leaders and NGOs who want to deploy the technology, and you, everyone can get how to use your technology because they're also part of the creation and ideation process. But the real test is when you put it in the hands of a complete stranger who doesn't know anything about the technology and you need to train them up quickly and efficiently. efficiently, And then you realize, did you design something? A whole different language. Yeah, it, it's totally hard. And I mean, this is even hard for the big software companies. They're always iterating their user interfaces and upgrading stuff, you know? Like, how many operating systems are we on? Right? right. They've not, they haven't solved the problem. There is no one operating system, uh, you know, uh, Mac OS 10 point whatever is the final one and has solved all usability problems. No, it's, you know, um, so it's, it's a tough thing because people are diverse and they use technology in diverse ways and they have, there's diverse settings, situations to, uh, context to use the device and patients are diverse. So it's hard to get the one size fits all and, um, so you really have to think through that. I mean, I'll give you one cool example that we didn't, that, yeah, we didn't realize would be such a challenge. You know, it's a complicated optics device, complicated algorithms, really sophisticated. But trying to make the eye cup that, you know, putting this device onto your face, making that fit, you know, either gender, any age, multiple ethnicities, was a real challenge because people's facial structures are so diverse. There's so much variability. And you read the literature and it says, okay, well, the pupillary distance, the distance between both eyes, you know, like 98% or something, 99% of the population is less than 80 millimeters. And these global health groups were taking our device to certain regions of the world and they were saying, hey. We have the 2% here that are... Not even. They were having 10% of their patients were larger than that. And we were like, wait a second, but we, we so thoroughly talked to key pin leaders and read the literature and, you know, but that was country specific. Global, or, that was yeah. a global average versus what is, you know. Um, and so the amount of iteration we had to do to make the eye cup be as neutral as possible, it's really good, but it's not perfect. There's always room to improve. We underestimated that and we did a lot of iteration on that. And when I teach in design courses, I, I use that as an example. It's a fond memory for me because it's like, oh, it's just an eye cup. How, how hard is it to design that? Yeah, the afterthought of the after right? creating the whole but optical the, technology. Yeah, yeah, but if the eye cup doesn't sit right, the optics don't align to the eye, it doesn't matter how sophisticated your algorithm is, right? So that, that was, yeah, that, that was an interesting learning. That kind of stuff will move much faster on version 2.0. <laughs> right. So let's let's take it back. So um, you're you're from Sacramento area. Um, 916. 916. <laughs> um, and you were. Uh, was there a moment in your? You know, I mean, what kind of kid were you like? Were you? Did your parents know you were going to be doing science already from a young age, or you have brothers and sisters? I have a younger brother. He's a, a surgery resident at UC Davis Medical. He went to undergrad at UC Davis. So go Aggies. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, I was, a. um, yeah, my friends will find this funny, but I, I was the kind of kid who is like peacemaker on the playground in elementary school, you know, break up the fight, stop people from bullying someone, you know, be friends with everyone, really sweet kid. But, you know, my parents, um, dad's a, an engineer and retired now. My mom was a teacher in India, very well educated for her time. Like she had four degrees. She's amazing. Wow. And, um. They never pressured us. They just said, you know, you need to study hard. You need to take education seriously. But what they would do is they'd take us to India and teach us a lot of our, you know, Indian traditional cultural values um, from where they're from. And they never shielded us from the immense disparity and poverty that was going on in India back then. I mean, it's still going on now, but to, uh, the country's much improved. Still many problems, but way improved. But the amount of poverty and health disparity that was there really impacted us. And they never said, hey, you got to do something about it. But they didn't kind of shield us from the realities of the world. 
So in your own mind, this was always something you wanted to do yeah. as far as you can remember traveling back to India. Yeah, this is something I decided when I was very young. And it's, I'm a stubborn guy. <laughs> I'm not necessarily the smartest. I'm just stubborn and hardworking. So you put those and you give that kind of person a North Star and they'll keep going towards that North Star. So where did science come into it? Yeah, I mean, I loved um, the sciences. I remember there's a cable access channel like in Sacramento. We never had cable, but we had like access to like these you know, like C-SPAN local and some local channel. And uh, I liked the sciences, and there would be this program by Professor David Goldstein from Caltech oh. called Mechanical Universe. And it would go through, like, the history of physics and relativity and quantum and, like, you know, like the Michelson-Morley experiment and, you know, Wilkinson and how he measured, what was it, the, the weight of a, an electron or the charge of an electron, or I forget the exact, but... And I'll be watching this in fifth and sixth grade with my dad... Not understanding all of it, but it was like, oh, that's really cool. And, you know, I was, um, so I was very interested in that stuff from an early age as well. And then thinking, you know, I'm going to be the host of this show or, or. No, I mean, you know, the kind of joke is when you're Indian in the U.S. is like, oh, you're going to be a doctor. <laughs> right. And, you know, when you say, hey, I want to have a healthcare impact, you say, hey, I want to be a doctor. That's the logical thing to do. One-on-one mm -hmm. -on -one, help people. And I went to a public high school, an international baccalaureate high school, mm. Miraloma High, for all you Miraloma High alumni out there. I had fantastic teachers and got to really get exposed to advanced math and more chemistry. And, you know, we had two years of biology and anthropology and wow. global studies and kind of theory of knowledge. And uh, I loved it. And when I went to undergrad, I, I you know, went in being pre-med at Cal, go Bears, um, to saying, hey, I don't want to just study molecular cell biology. I love all these things. I want to figure out how to integrate them. And then bioengineering was a new, like I think it was in its third year as an undergraduate degree. So I petitioned to transfer in. I didn't really know about it when I applied. And once I discovered it was there on campus, I was like, oh, this is for me. Because then I get to take all the sciences and all the math and all the engineering and just kind of run wild around Berkeley learning, you know. And uh, my roommates would laugh because I would, go audit a ton, I would petition to audit a bunch of classes. So I'd like sit in on high energy astrophysics and then go to an anthropology class and then go take, you know, four bioengineering classes and stuff that was above my pay grade, like, you know, in mathematics that I didn't understand, but I would just sit there and try to learn. And it was great. And, uh, and it was cool because I could still stay pre-med, but learn all the sciences that I was passionate about and kind of think about ideas and stuff I'd want to research. And then eventually I started realizing, and you know, I took the MCATs and all that, did well. But I started working in, in a lab and started, you know, getting to the point where I was like, do I want to go into medicine and kind of just keep learning biology and working on this problem one-on-one, -on -one, one person at a time? Or maybe I want to do research. I can, you know, if you do good research, you have potential to help more people. So it's kind of in the back of my mind, it's kind of like, oh, you can amplify the impact potential impact i mean the so you know in that in that thinking are you are you thinking about these experiences you talked about already from traveling to india or the impoverished people that you that you saw or were you yeah. making those connections at that time yeah 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 it was that and it was you know um bioengineering you know you you you're focused on improving human health and um and also along the way i meet professors and later in grad school I meet doctors and they would just say like hey this problem I'm working on is so big, and I go and do this global health work, but it's a drop in the bucket. This ophthalmologist told me she would go to Inner Mongolia and do like cataract surgeries, you know. Um, and you know, you start thinking like, hey, it's uh, I, you know, doing research is the way to, to have a larger impact. Then you know, in grad school, so you know, um, you start realizing publishing papers doesn't it changes the world in some ways, but it doesn't bring a health solution to the population that needs it. You actually have to go develop something, and you have to develop it out of lab. You can't just publish a paper. And so I started getting into entrepreneurship and more translational medicine. And it, so it was always in the back of my mind, but now it was becoming clearer that if I wanted to have an impact, you, you actually have to see it through. Anyone can come up with a strategy. Strategy is easy. You know, anyone can come up with a theoretical solution. That's cool, that's great, you know, I can theoretically tell you how to win the championship, can you, can I put in all the work to win, in, to win the championship, get the skills, and build the team, and
So once you started thinking about this, was was it, you know, was the vision in, in your mind, you know, maybe just privately to yourself or, or out loud, like, I'm going to start my own company one day. I don't know what the technology is, uh, you know, totally entrepreneurship or were you thinking you're going to join yeah. other companies or? I mean, these ideas were really, I think, taking hold in high school and then in college, I, I wanted to work and uh, a lot of things, but I wanted to work, you know, it was becoming very clear to me, I wanted to work the interface of like chemistry, nanotechnology, human health, um, but I also had these passions about energy. So I really actually wanted to, not a lot of people know this, but like in some of my grad school applications or maybe part of undergrad, yeah, I would have all kinds of ideas where I wanted to work on like, you know, artificial photosynthesis and things like that. And I would find these chemistry professors at Cal who I wanted to work with who weren't doing that, but they were doing really cool stuff. And I would say, hey, I'd like to volunteer in your lab. And they say, no, you're not a chemistry student. You're in bioengineering. So I took all these chemistry classes to kind of show them that I had the, the chops to be in their lab. And then I took like graduate level chemistry classes and as an undergrad and got, I was a couple of classes away from double major. It was, ended up being a minor, but um, they still wouldn't let me in because I was technically a bioengineering student, which frustrated me, but I was like, these are the skills I needed to go do that kind of research. So I was always trying to chase just the stuff I'm interested in and then the skills that I thought would be needed to attack these healthcare problems or these other kind of problems. Sounds like they were trying to force you into a single disciplinary box yeah. uh, and yeah. synthesize that. And then I, I went to industry. It was this chemistry research and experience I had, which got me my internship after college, not bioengineering. Because bioengineering was a relatively new degree. Everyone said, hey, you're going to get a job. But industry was like, what the heck's a bioengineer? We know what a molecular cell biologist is. We know what an electrical engineer is. We don't know what a bioengineer is. And uh, so I worked in a pharmaceutical company as a synthetic chemist. It was a part of Celera. And uh, that was a really great experience. And then, you know, they did such cool research. such an innovative company. And uh, But I also... You know, I have a lot of talks with my advisor there and, you know, understand that, hey, I'm here to do chemistry and work on the problems they need. You know, I don't just get to go do whatever I want, right? And I have all these ideas, so, you know, I should go pursue a PhD and then learn to be more independent. And um, so I applied to, yeah, graduate schools and tried to be independent and um, but focus on that interface of nanotechnology and health and chemistry. So that's why I did my PhD in nano technology and it also just worked a lot on translational medicine in grad school at University of Washington go Huskies <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah was, and that was very cool but so by this point the the dream of the MD is is dead yeah I finally was like yeah you know I was like oh maybe I'll do MD PhD and it's like man that's too long and do I have to do the MD part and I think over the last 20 years you've seen like scientists and engineers play a bigger role in medicine than they they had previously. So it started becoming clear, hey, you don't have to, but going back to that scaling argument, it's like, oh, if I was a doctor helping someone one-on-one, -on -one, you know, some doctors have helped people on massive scale. They run organizations, they create new surgical techniques and things like that. Um, they do research, but it wasn't the right fit for me. And then, you know, I was doing research, worked in industry, and then I was like, yeah, I have to work a little more on the translational side and, and bring stuff out, help it bring out. But I always wanted to stay at a professor. You know, be the guy who's just this, creating a lot of ideas, doing some theoretical work, experimental work, and have a foot in entrepreneurship. Help it spin out of the lab, and um, but not the one who carries it all the way over the, the goal line. Um, but then I kind of realized, like, you know, when we're, when we're in this uh, advanced research fellowship at MIT in the Envision program, like, my co-founders and I realized, like, hey, we, we're going to have to, we have to carry this out. If we want it to have the impact, sometimes in academia you think, hey, you can create the idea and then license it to a bigger company and they'll do it. They don't. And, you know, or, oh, we can, these other pathways, and, and some of them are, can be successful, but it, it, uh, it became clear that we had to carry the football. And so that's what we kind of put our heads down and decided to do, and that's why we're sitting around the table making that decision. How do we want to carry the football? What game do we want to play? And, you know, we're all united in that we want to have that impact. And we realize, like, if we put the effort in and we kind of try to stay sharp and lean, you know, people don't want to fund global health stuff, we could, you know, it'll be a hard road, but we can we can make it worth it and we can 
we can have that impact, but we're going to have to be effective and efficient. Yeah. So, now, I mean, now you have this product, you have this reach, it's, it's well established, um, you know, but, you know, going back to you being at this table, I mean, where does the confidence come from to think that, yeah, we can actually do this? Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a very reflective question. That's a good one. Um, or how often does doubt creep in, I mean, along the way? Or? Yeah. I mean, it depends on everyone. I think, you know, hmm, you always have some level of doubt. I, 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 we're not the kind to just be blinded by vision. We're very thorough. And we had done so much work. You know, before we spun out, we'd gone to India. I'd taken the team there. We went to different eye hospitals and NGOs and for-profits um, to try to understand the problem there. We'd go to conferences. So we, we had done... So at this time, are there like contingency plans? Like you're like, oh, I'm going to, we're going to go to India. We're going to do this. You know, who knows? Or is it just like we're hustling, we're making this yeah. happen? This was like still in the ideation phases and early prototype phases and clinical evaluation. And, but once we started getting the results, like, hey, we can make this like basic technology, as I was showing this morning, and get good results that match best-in-class commercial systems, which are way more expensive. Um, and that, you know, these stakeholders in these low- and middle-income countries seem to want this. Hey, this, is, this has potential. And then, you know, you start working on the business development side and the manufacturing side. And yeah, the, the doubts would come in, you know, when, you know, you have to get used to hearing no a lot. But, you know, for me, this was the third technology I helped spin out of the university. So it, maybe it's confidence. It's, it's not, I hope it's not arrogance, but it's just kind of, you're very passionate about your vision. You understand there's going to be thorns along the way. It's going to be a bumpy road. But you just know, like, I'm going in that direction. And, um, uh, you know, and you understand that, okay, you're climbing up a mountain. There are many paths up the mountain. But, you know, your goal is to get to the top of the mountain. So you also realize you're going to be flexible. And when some one boundary comes up, you have to, you know, be like water and, and flow around it, as they say. So I, I think it's that. But doubt does creep in. But that's also where you need to have a good support structure great advisors, you know, academic advisors, clinical advisors, even just personal mentors and coaches on the entrepreneurial side, good sets of friends. I've been blessed with, you know, great mentors and friends who've helped prop me up over the years. I guess your parents must not have been too disappointed to not get the MD out. <laughs> yeah. well, they got one. Yeah, they got one. Yeah, he's the, he's the lovely son. Um, was it hard? I mean, did you have to, was it to, to tell them or were they oh, no, always no. supportive along the way? Yeah, they never said be a doctor. They just said, you know, their advice was pretty simple, like, you know, um, learn if you want to, but it's important to learn, mm. right? And, you know, kind of left, left it up to the kids, but... Um, so was there a moment during, you know, this, this, whole, this whole journey to, to, to where we're sitting now where it was like you made it over the hill or a, a defining sort of like, you know, oh, we, this actually can work? Mm. You know, I think... Um, Maybe sad. Maybe the answer is sadly no. Um, you know, for some companies, it's when you ha you launch your first product and make your first sale. And we were so busy at the time. We literally, and you know, my co-founders are split between here, Spain, and Singapore, and Johns Hopkins and Baltimore. So we literally sent a text. <laughs> we sold our first product in India. Wow! Congrats! Congrats! All right, back to work. Like, there was no launch party. Just a couple emoji and yeah. back to work. And, you know, we published a big paper where we showed this impact. But, you know, the review process took a year and a half. But we had the results two years ago, you know. And so we knew it it was working. And then, you know, so the, the paper getting published is kind of anticlimactic at that point, you know. Um, so, yeah, we're not... We, we actually try... We've talked about this. We need to be more... Uh, enthusiastic about celebrating the wins because they are tough and we do it now as the team's gotten bigger because it's important for the rest of the team but I think just the the co-founders were on that same wavelength and we have the kind of same personality that we just want to let our actions speak for ourselves you know and um, and we and, and we know it's a much longer road still we're just scratching the surface of our potential um how do you manage the daily stress? Is it, are you like a to-do list kind of guy or you just shut off at, at 6 p.m. or? Uh, no, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, they'll laugh. So one, first, we're, we're pretty flat. We, we try, we don't make all decisions uh, 
democratically, but we, we, we take a lot of input. And so um, the most junior engineer who just starts, you know, there's no kind of separation between the founders and, and that engineer. It's like they have a good idea or a concern, they just voice it, and we have these team meetings, and everyone's equal in that. Um, yeah, some people have more responsibilities, but, you know, I like to joke that um, I'm head of HR and legal and the janitor, you know, chief janitor officer, and so, like, see, it's just a title. Um, but, uh, you know, um, there, yeah, there, there's certainly a lot of stress. There were earlier years when cash flow was really hard, right? You're waiting for a grant to hit. No one wants to invest. You're, you're pre-revenue. And so you're really, you know, you'd have to ask your vendors, hey, can I pay you a little late? You know, and you're like, you know, thinking of contingency plans. Oh, can we like, you know, how can we extend runway? What can we, how can we reduce um, burn rate? Those were stressful times, right? Because you feel a responsibility to the team, to the people who supported you, to the stakeholders, right? There's people who you're collaborating with who want to see this come out, who you've been working with for five years, right? And you don't want to let them down. You don't want to let the patients they serve down. So that's definitely um, stress. But I think over the years, you, you learn to process it differently. And, um, you know, whether you're a project leader or a co-founder or a board member, you know, you all, you, there's always going to be stress. And you have to learn as you mature to kind of handle it better and better. So, you know, I try to exercise and be uh, meditate and practice music or spend time with friends and, you know, talk to a lot of people. Don't let it get bottled up. Um, so a lot of good friends and things like that. But I think over the years also you learn to take things less personally. Um, one learns to be understand there's going to be bumps in the road so you don't get too high, you don't get too low with the wins or the, the, the challenges, you know. Maybe become a little too even keel, but it's because you're looking... Uh, it's like there's a Jay-Z, great Jay-Z line. He's like, I'm not looking at you. I'm looking past you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you're looking at something else, right? Um, but that doesn't erase the, the, the stresses. Uh, you know, some of my co-founders, most of them have kids. So they have to be very rigorous with their time and say, hey, i got to shut off. i got, you know, responsibilities. I don't have that constraint. So, um, unfortunately, I'll, I'll answer emails at all times of the day and have calls. And, you know, that's the other thing. You, we, we, we used to joke the sun never sets on Planoptica because the product's being used around the world. We have folks working with us around the world. And so someone, you know, in East Asia wants to have a call. The timing is going to be bad for someone on the team. And someone in Australia wants to have a training session, you know. So we're used to taking kind of calls. All, but that's part of having impact is having customer service. So is the work-life balance something you, you think about a lot or something to improve or just, oh, that's just, oh, yeah. that's just part of my life? or No, no, it's something, yeah, I, I was always one who could, uh, had, had much better, I think, work-life work -life balance. Um, and, you know, when you get older, it's, you don't want to, like, have four hours of sleep every night. You can do it once in a while. But when you're in college, it's like, yeah, whatever, that's easy. Um, no, it is something, and as you get older, you know, you want to have... Um, you want to have more time to spend it with your loved ones. And so it is something we, we think about a lot, and that's part of making a sustainable company. Part of what makes it sustainable is you're, yeah, you're bringing in revenue, you're growing, but you can also bring more hands on deck so that the workload is a little more realistic, right? And that's part of what raising capital is about. Um, you're always going to work hard, but, you know, you shouldn't kill yourself along the way and you should um enjoy it and then you know um but yeah i think you know you have to build a schedule into you know okay you're going to be dedicated to exercising or doing whatever you need to do to decompress to process and um when you're a co-founder or ceo you have to also have a lot of emotional intelligence and you're jumping between different kinds of conversations all the time so those kind of and you're making all kinds of decisions so there can be decision fatigue and kind of communication fatigue and you know um, you're overstressing your empathy because you're always putting yourself into someone else's viewpoint and thinking it from their frame of view. So sometimes you just need to become introverted and kind of collect your own thoughts and, and um, recharge the batteries. And um, I think you get stressed when you don't realize those limitations. 
And so you learn to drive the car better in a way. You know, if you're a distance runner, if you're an elite marathoner, you're like basically sprinting for 26 miles. But if you're an average marathon runner, you know when to kick it in and when to kind of pace. And when you're younger and you're marathon running, you might overdo it and then you hurt yourself, right? That's like an analogy for stress. Or you, you run out of gas before the marathon ends. So you just learn to drive the car better, you know, and to understand its signals and gauges, which is you looking in the mirror and self-assessing, right? Okay, I'm getting stressed here. Like, why am I getting stressed here? Oh, it's because, you know, I'm actually really tired from making decisions. Okay, I should do this to recharge and then approach this discussion, you know, um, things like that. So where can people find you if they want to connect? further. Uh, yeah, uh, we're happy to talk. If they email us at hello at planoptica.com, um, that'll definitely come across my, my inbox. Um, please no spam. 24-7 uh, uh, no. is what yeah. I heard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, uh, we're, we're uh, based in Boston, based in Madrid, but yeah, we do like to mentor both on the sciences, on entrepreneurship, on design. You know, um, the great thing about working in academia and in entrepreneurship is it's a community of people who want to do good and help others. And there's a, a good community of people who want to give back, especially in entrepreneurship. And so we've been blessed to get so much great feedback and support and mentorship from our board, from advisors, from investors, from just partners. And so we all feel like it's a duty to give back. And uh, that's why we, we love doing these kinds of things. Maybe you can leave us with a suggestion. What's the last great thing that you've watched or read? Hmm. On the plane over... I saw a documentary on Jimmy Carter mm. and his love of rock and roll. <laughs> um, and he was such a, he's such a fascinating person, Nobel Prize winner, right? Um, such a spiritual man, but a very practical man. He could build consensus. He helped with the peace process. You know, you know, his presidency towards the end had a lot of, you know, critiques and, you know, he was a one-term president. But he just, you know, from what I've read about him and know about him, it seems like he's so calm, so graceful, not egotistical, um, just a, a great person to learn from on so many different ways. And um, even at an older age, you know, and uh, he had so much impact even after the presidency. And, you know, he came from humble roots. And there's so many great individuals like that. But that was something I just saw yesterday. But there's, that's such a, so many things I could say. But that was, that's a yeah, good one. That's great. I'll check it out. Yeah, well, Dr. Shivang Deve, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it was great to hear from you. Thanks for having me. All the best, everyone.